From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 256, and today I am joined by film critic Victor Stiff. Victor is a Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic. His work can be seen on Dope Black Movies, UFO Movie Club. He's also on YouTube and is also on this website, That Shelf, as a senior critic. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. Okay, so we're sitting down to watch Top Gun. I'm Jeremy. I've seen this film, but probably not since high school, so... I I can almost say like I haven't seen it except for I know a couple small peak things, but yeah, this is almost like a rewatch for me. And I'm here with Victor Stiff, and you haven't seen it. I played the Nintendo game a ton. I've seen <laughs> pop culture references. The Nintendo game drove me insane. Maybe that's why I rebelled against seeing it. But I'm so well, down to check it out. I don't know if I actually played the Nintendo game. How did it work? It's terrible. <laughs> it's one of the most hated, difficult to play games in history. Trust me. There's a whole generation of '80s kids who just could not land the plane on the aircraft carrier. It's oh, I feel like that one came. It eventually ended up on one of those di- those, those the cartridges you could buy that had like 50 games on it. I hope they didn't do that to people. It was not a good game. <laughs> Well, that was it, because those, you bought those cartridges because it was such a great deal. 50 games, one cartridge, but the gimmick was that it was like maybe three or four of the games were any decent, and the rest were all just like crap games that they dumped on. Um, and they did that again, like when they re-released the NES, those little digital boxes you can plug in here, and that was the same thing. There's 250 games on it, but I think 10 of them are games you know, and the rest are like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, I only played like three of them. You're I right. Wonder, we should look and see if Top Gun's on that. Like Japanese soccer. Yeah, Japanese soccer is on that. <laughs> what is this? But talking might, because I remember, I think I remember we rented it once and it was the same. I think, yeah. And it was just like, this game doesn't like, it's crazy, stupid hard. I was an expert gamer and I couldn't play that game and it stuck with me. Maybe I need to go back and just get it out of my system. So hopefully watching the movie will give me a bit of motivation to go back and like repent from my past video game sins. Well, as they get ready to release the, the, um, the sequel, um, they should re-release that game. Somehow online. Sure, give it a modern update, you know, give it a... No, don't even. <laughs> just put it online oh, and, and just, you, you know, you have to use your keyboard or your mouse. $100,000 for the first one who... For, for, yeah, for $100,000 for the first person to land the plane? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so my friend, my son Ephraim won't be joining us for the later back of the ha- podcast, but he is going to watch this. I think his only tie-in to Top Gun is... I went on the ride. He went on the ride at Canada's Wonderland, but it used to be called something else, though. They rebranded. No, it's Flight Deck now. It was Flight Deck now, but it used to be Top Gun, yeah. right? So they've rebranded it since. So, but that's interesting because the movie is coming out. I wonder if they'll rebrand it again this summer. No, because it was like. Oh Paramount. right, it's not owned by Paramount anymore. Yeah, it's a different studio owns it. No, Canada. 
What were you going to say? Canada's Wonderland used to be owned by Paramount. Right, but now it's not. But yeah, now it's owned by... I can't remember. Canada's Wonderland. Just Canada's Wonderland. You're right, because it, it lost... It used to have the Italian ride... Um, Italian job ride, which is now just a car ride. They, re, they call it like Moody, Movie Studio Backlot or something. Backlot Stunt Coaster. Backlot Stunt Coaster. <laughs> They've had to take all these really specific rides that were tailored for movies and had to give them new names. Yeah, I, that's just, it's like you're trying to be generic. <laughs> yeah, it's like fast cycle thing. Um, so what do you know about this movie? I know there's a heavy homoerotic subtext. I know they really put aviator shades on the mat and, on the on the map, and uh, makes me want to go out and buy a bomber jacket. That's about it. <laughs> nice. Okay. Planes. You know, there's planes in it, <laughs> and not even jets. Like even like planes. I'm expecting to see something fly in the air at some point. Yes. Good guess. I think you'll be right. All right. Well, I think that's a good spot to just jump in. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. All right. So we just finished. And? I'm so glad I didn't see that at 12 years old because I would have made it my life's mission to be a fighter pilot. There's no way. (laughs) At the very least, I would have been the douchebag wearing bomber jackets and aviators to school every day. (laughs) Well, you still can. Nobody's going to stop you. Yeah, I have more self-esteem now. <laughs> uh, it's interesting having... I, I just remembered key little bits. I remember I remember all the nicknames. Um, also, just because they're all just part of pop culture. Yeah. Um, so, uh, where, where I don't even... Where, where do you start? Tony Scott shot the hell out of the movie. Like, it looked incredible. I would just sit and watch a half-hour supercut of Tom Cruise driving around on a motorcycle at, like, Magic Hour. It just right? looked incredible. It was so... It was just so... And I don't know. I felt like I was there yeah. on the motorcycle with him. Exactly. And you and that's definitely... You, and you always wonder with a movie like this, like, how much of this was shot by Tony Scott and how much of this is the B unit, right? Or, or the C unit or the fighter jet unit, right? Because uh, so much of the... The air photography is fantastic. Yeah, because '86 uh, it was right before they started leaning on computers for special effects. So yeah. they actually were on aircraft carriers watching real jets taking off. But even there's so many shots where, like, now you'd use um, GoPros or, or some similar thing. But there's so many shots where it's like it's clearly this camera is rigged to a plane. Like, how many probably cheap little? I wonder how much of it is like cheap 16 millimeter per camera that they weren't worried until if it flew off somehow. They weren't worried about about it too much, but there some of the, the photography in this movie is insane. Yeah, I try not to read up too much on a movie before I seen it, but I did a little bit of research on this, and apparently Tony Scott. There's one scene where they're on the aircraft carrier, and the aircraft carrier started turning, and the sun wasn't where he needed it to be, and he wanted the captain to fix the boat so he could get a shot. And he's <laughs> like, to turn this giant boat around is going to cost. Adam twenty eight thousand dollars, and then Tony Scott wrote him a check on the spot to recalibrate the boat so he could get his shot. Of course, and I'm sure the studio re- reimbursed him. I certainly hope so. So it cost that in fuel. Is that the? It must. It's just such a big lumbering machine. It must be very hard to just navigate it, go against the ocean currents. I guess. Turn it around. He pulls out his checkbook. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a baller move right there. Um, the other thing is. Uh, this really reminded me of Michael Bay. Um, I have Bay on the mind because his new film's coming out. I'm going to go screen it later this week. And it's like, it has that 
I don't know if we'd have the Michael Bay we have today without these Tony Scott movies because it's just it's so uh, it's so macho and and stylized and like hyper masculine. Um, whereas Michael Bay tends to be a director who gets high on his own supply. This is like a grittier version of Michael Bay. Yeah. And it's just, I could just watch this kind of nonsense all day long. For sure. Like, you don't get a movie like, um, I'm trying to think of like pre-Transformers Michael Bay when he was making non-genre uh, movies. But Armageddon. Like, Armageddon. Yeah, Armageddon for sure. Like, you look at this movie and like the DNA, you look at Armageddon the DNA of Top Gun is all over it. But also, uh, well, he made one of the war movies too, right? Like, uh, no, did he make the one Pearl, Pearl Harbor? Did he do that? I think Bruckheimer produced it. I'm not sure if that was a Bay film or not. Yeah. Anyway, um, but you don't get those films. Even, even, but even Transformers, you can see the DNA. Oh, for sure. Of Tony Scott all over Michael Bay stuff. Um, it story wise, I was trying to figure out so. It's a, it's an interesting movie because like it sets you up to believe that it's like this movie's gonna be about like him and Ice competing for the Top Gun spot, but it, it it's barely a plot point in the story, in the movie outside of that open a really overt setup. Yeah, this movie actually remind I kept thinking of the Will Smith Chris Rock incident. Funny enough, because right? This is a movie. It takes your hero, and I'm just gonna come out and say I love. I love um, Tom Cruise movies, but I don't like Tom Cruise. Yeah. It's just his movies are so good. Like, I can't help but get into them. And, like, all the things I don't like about him were on display in this movie. I just find him obnoxious, right? He, he comes off as a dick. And it's like everything he does is wrong. It's like, just like the Will Smith incident, this movie is about people who are supremely talented just getting a pass to just do terrible things and yeah. keep failing upwards, right? So it's like... Um, He's irresponsible. He follows. He he harasses his instructor. He follows her into a bathroom. He's dating the the teacher. Uh, he does those little flybys and he gets in shit. And they just keep on, you know, giving him opportunity after after opportunity. And it's just everything that Iceman says is actually correct. Like yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm just getting old, but I was on Iceman's side most of the film. No, I you know you watch it. I I agree. And there's like almost uh, you know I talk about this when it comes to you know, creatives in the film industry too. It's like, there's a Venn diagram where it's like, you can be as crazy as you are talented. Uh, and it's a very, you know, and depending how talented you are, that's how much you can get away with. Right. Um, uh, and some people think they can get away with more than they do. Uh, which is, I think the case of Will Smith. I think not that I think he was like, when he made that, you know, gesture, he was thinking, he wasn't, he clearly wasn't thinking. Um, but a man like that probably you know, only does something like that because they think that they can get away with anything. Yeah. You know? He had to be Hollywood's most beloved sweetheart. Anyone else would have got ejected. Yeah. So, anyway. But but back to this. I agree. Like, watching that as he's trying to seduce his teacher, it's just like, dude, like, you're every you're breaking every rule of, especially modern day. Yeah. You know, you got to give the movie, it's now, what, 30, how many years? 35 years old? Yeah, 36. Something, yeah. So, you know, but following her in, just every, the way. But the worst part was the one the thing that bothered me about that whole plot in this movie, the, the love story, as we'll call it, yeah. uh, the, the, the one pursuit. love story, the the, the non heteroerotic love story, is that like she has a strong, interesting character until she falls in love with Maverick. You know, like she's 
got all that plane speak. She's smart. She's got like a mission. She's studying the mag uh, plane, whatever that is, the enemy plane that they're all like obsessed with. But then as soon as they fall in love, all it is is about him and about their story. Like, it's not like it becomes an issue that they're dating. You're expecting that one of them, they're going to get in trouble for, you know, cross-pollinating while at school. But no, that's not an issue with anyone. They're in public and it's fine. So it's like, well, what? Like, huh? Yeah, it it doesn't make sense. Like, I would actually like to have seen a spinoff movie about her in this world of these hyper-masculine dudes. Yeah. And just being smarter than them and better than them and how she has to navigate that. Uh, One thing that just really had me going, what am I watching? Is after they, you know, have their night together, she wakes up, uh, Maverick's gone, and she finds a paper airplane beside the bed. Yeah, that's it. That's his baller uh, slip-away move. Yeah. That's just this she, movie's wild on so many levels. But she wakes up to perfect lighting. Oh, everything in this movie is lit perfectly. <laughs> you have to be able to capture every bead of sweat dripping down everyone's face all the time. Yeah, Tony Stark actually had the apartment, you know, rerouted and turned around for the shot for the lighting. <laughs> yeah, he wrote a check to the. Oh God, yeah. that the the love scene we were t- what we were watching the tongue action in those silhouettes shots. It was gross. It yeah. It's and I, it's one of those things you go like that. That was that just a Tom Cruise move, and they just went with it. But it had to be because as good as Tony Scott is at shooting this movie, how many shots did they get of them making love? And the fact that every shot he used had tongue in it, like he knew what he was doing there. Like that must have been the either the best he had to work with, or everything had all tongue all the time. Yeah, it's a weird thing, just, you know, having directed actors in, in scenes, you know, similar to this. It, it's a delicate thing when, because when actors are doing scenes like this, they're pulling stuff out of their own bag of tricks, right? Oh, yeah. And to tell someone's like, hey, what you're doing isn't sexy. It's kind of creepy, actually. It's a very fine line, because what you're subconsciously saying is like, hey, your moves in real life are off-putting. <laughs> and no one's told you. Uh, so I can imagine uh, at this point, uh, Tony Scott's not walking up to Tom Cruise and saying, hey, dude, don't uh, maybe less tongue on the next one. But he wasn't Tom Cruise yet. so No, but he was on the the verge. Like, this is this is 86, so what, you know... Uh, like Risky Business, Risky maybe? Business is, just, is before him, for sure. Because Risky Business was his first big move. But he, it's not that much... Because well, he still looks like a baby here. Yeah. Like, he's he's got... He doesn't have the refined features on his face the way uh, the way he does in the later movies. Um, still had that big toothy grin. Still toothy grin. The only one who could outtooth him was uh, Val Kilmer. Just the Tooth Brothers. Val Kilmer is interesting in this movie. Like you said, it's like he he's Iceman because he's known as the guy that does everything by the book. Um, but it's interesting because he's uh, he wins the Top Gun. He, I guess he needs help at the end, but it doesn't seem like he does anything wrong. It's just these mag planes are just faster or sharper or more aggressive than anything they've got, the U.S. has in their fleet. Yeah, it was, it was weird the way they, they pulled those two arcs together. It didn't really feel like it paid off so much. No. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out where this is exactly inside of... He uh... probably had four or five movies hit before this one. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, um, where is it? 82, 86, Top Gun. Legend. Legend just came out. Oh, with Ridley Scott. Yeah. So he was working with the Scott Brothers back to back. Maybe that's how he got in this movie. He might have been working 
And before that was all the right moves, and before that was risky business. And then Outsiders, of course. So it's this, and then Color of Money. So this and Color of Money came out the same year. Oh, he was having a moment. And then Cocktail, then Rain Man. So this is right... And then Born on the Fourth of July. Like, this is just when he could do no no wrong, and just every single thing is just... Yeah, like you were saying, before we, we started, you were talking about um, how he doesn't really have a dud on his resume. I was going over his IMDb, and I was shocked at like how many movies are on there are just legit good movies. He didn't have uh, many box office bombs or critical bombs either. He's just been solid for, I don't know, 35 years, 40 years now? Yeah, uh, we were talking uh, before just about the, the lack of kind of movie stars these days, and I think a lot, of, a lot of people would argue that Tom Cruise is the last bankable movie star where you put him in a movie and you're going to do box office. Yeah, if I had to bet my life on one star supporting a movie, I think he's the last one left. Um, it will be interesting to see what his career does after he steps away from the Mission Impossible movies. But for now, you know, I see his next two movies banking easily seven, eight hundred million dollars. That's just it. Like, you know, the sequel to this is, is next. And then uh, when's that next Mission Impossible come out? They keep pushing it back. Uh, maybe this year. I know they're, they're doing the, the last two. T- they're shooting them back to back. Yeah. So, uh, They'll probably come out a year apart or six yeah. months apart. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does after because maybe he'll just retire or 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 maybe he'll. I mean, I don't, I don't know if he wants to, you know, do that thing where he wins the Oscar or he, uh, you know, goes that path. I mean, he's fine just making big fun movies. This is a guy who straps himself to the sides of skyscrapers and airplanes. He's he's never retiring. He's going to be rolling out in a wheelchair making movies at 99. He'll probably outlive us all, and he'll still be making action movies. That's true. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he, he he's the kind of guy that, because he just kind of creates... I think anything he goes in can create a franchise, so that's got to be the thing he's looking for next, is what's the franchise he can create following following Mission Impossible. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the sequel does. And, you know, are they handing the franchise off to a next generation? Or is this something where they can keep bringing him back to uh, take over the... Keep pursuing the role of Maverick? Yeah, it's interesting. Because this one, the story... I mean, this is all about the fight scenes and, and, and the flying scenes. Because the story itself is non-existent for the most part. Like, it's not, it's not that it's... Not there. He has a character arc. He learns to work with others and, and work within the rules and the system. But, um, but because it's interesting though, it's like he had like he the moment where he has the most change when Goose dies, obviously Anthony Edwards' character. But it comes at a point like he didn't do anything wrong there. It was just the plane fucked up. Yeah, they made right? that very clear. So it's almost like. Would it have been better if he'd have made a small error uh, or been cocky and not to kill his partner? And that's how he learns his lesson. Because to just learn it out of random, a random thing that could have happened to anybody. Yeah, they could have woven, they could have weaved it into the story much better. That's for sure. Like this whole movie is just fueled by the sh- pure charisma and star power of Tom Cruise. Like it wasn't a technically well written movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the action scenes were like very like visceral and you felt them but even like aside from the cool shots of the jets it didn't have a good sense of even like space when they were fighting there was just like a lot of rapid cuts and you kind of felt it more than you 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 could kind of 
understand where the, the different fighters are coming from. Yeah, the essential geography isn't isn't great in terms of that element of, of the shooting and just understanding what's going on. Like the only one that, that I think is clear for me, and maybe because I've seen it before, is that last move where the guy's chasing him and then he ducks back and gets and falls into position. Um, but other than that, it's like who's on who and what's on what. And I guess, but I guess maybe that's part of the experience of being a, a fighter jet pilot. Maybe that was the intention was that sometimes you don't know where the other people are. Yeah, uh, fighter jet movies are usually quite sexy, right? It's it's very slick, and you get a feeling like these people are aces. Whereas this movie, you really feel like how powerful the machines are, how fast they're moving, and just how tense and chaotic it is. So maybe we're just supposed to feel it more than you know be in awe of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the experience of it. Um, who else? Oh, Meg Ryan's got a small little part. Yeah, that, that was weird. I always uh, confuse her with Melanie Griffith. So I, I got lost in the performance trying to figure out like which of those two actresses that oh, was. Oh, I, 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 so I said, I would like to say I did have a crush on Meg Ryan, but I do have a crush on Meg Ryan. She's still definitely one of those actors that growing up, I, I had a thing for, and still, when I see her, I'm just like, she is still adorable. Yeah, speaking of crushes, this McGillis lady, again, had I seen this at 12 years old, that I know she would have been an all-time crush. She'd be right up there with Kim Basinger and Michelle Pfeiffer and anyone else who ever appeared in a Batman flick. She, That's funny. Yeah, she would have been there for me. She, I don't remember her much, like, what her career was after this. I'm mm. sure she got canceled out by Sharon Stone. Yes, that's fair. Probably stole her thunder. Oh, I would imagine that that is true. Uh, what's interesting here is that it, what I like about her is like she's classically beautiful, but she's got like kind of a box. A, a, I don't want to say a boxy frame. That's you know from I mean? all those '80s shoulder pads. It's she was true, wearing. the '80s shoulder pads. Um, she holds her own with Cruz. Like he just has that thousand watt smile and all that charm and charisma, and she could like put him in his place with the blink of an eye until you know he. They do the deed, and then all of a sudden, she's just a more of a passive little lady. Yeah, that's true. No, she she had. Well, uh, you need someone that can go up against him. But she what else was she? She was in the Babe. Oh, she played uh, the Babe's wife. You ever seen that movie, the John Goodman movie about? Um, I don't think I did. Babe Ruth. Oh, I loved it from '92. But what did she do? The, the accused. Once we were dreamers. Oh, Made in Heaven! Oh my goodness, have you seen Made in Heaven? Which one was that? Oh, it's um, it's a movie. It was actually made the year after this. It's with Timothy Hutton. It is bonkers weird. I did it for the podcast. I don't think I've seen that one. It's about a couple that. Uh, oh god, I'm gonna get it wrong. But they, it's kind of a reincarnation. And about how, basically, uh, if you're soulmates, can you meet again in another life? Um, but there's this, like, their version of heaven is so weird. And everyone has, like, computers from the era. <laughs> it just doesn't feel... It just feels like a low-budget version of a big idea that could be interesting. Right. Sometimes those are the most interesting movies. I I did the, the podcast episode with my buddy Rob Haggins. And we spent most of that episode trying to figure out how... Because I'm like, there's a good idea here. It's just not well done. And how do you do that in an interesting way? And we, uh, we, I think we cracked it, but then we've done nothing with it since. Uh, it's, it's on my list now. I just wrote it down. Nice. It, it's not... It's, it's, 
watch it out of morbid curiosity more than like it's not something you're probably going to enjoy a lot of i think uh sometimes a bad interesting movie is much better than a good boring solid movie that's true that's true uh yeah i found myself like i think i don't know what it was about this but i found myself maybe because i'd seen it before but not so i didn't get excited by it the way i thought i would um because it plays like the tone of it feels more like a melodrama that's true. Uh, so, with this movie, had I seen it 10 years ago, I probably would have thought it was cheesetastic, like really campy, corny 80s. Mm-hmm. But in the last 10 years, there's been so much reverence paid to, like, John Carpenter movies and Tony Scott-style action movies. Like, even the musical cues, like, I was legit into them now. Like, there, there was no camp or anything to it. It's like, I've seen so many movies aping that style, it's kind of come around again, and it, I kind of find it cool. It's interesting. Yeah, I definitely felt the camp, but it doesn't bother me. Probably similar for the reason you have. Yeah. I wonder if it's just, there's so many, like, the, the generation of current filmmakers, This is these are the movies we watched growing up. You know, we, wa- we were children of the 80s. Yeah. And so, you know, now that we're making movies, we're, we're paying homage to the stuff that we loved. And so there's this weird retro-ness that's coming back to it. Yeah. I the DNA of these movies is just so integrated into the things we're watching now. It hasn't truly left us. No, exactly. Where it's like mine, my, my eighties love is less like stuff like this. I love this. I like this, but it's like mine is more like the back to the future movies and like the rom-coms of the eighties and the nineties and then and, and those kind of movies. But, uh, but like you said, it's like you can see, you know, the fingerprints of this on a lot of modern filmmakers, particularly someone like Michael Bay. Uh, this actually makes me just want to dive back into the Tony Scott filmography. Like, there's the movies like uh, True Romance. True Romance is my favorite of his. And uh, Man on Fire just has such a badass Denzel Washington performance. I just, I feel like I need to just go back from like 80s and just like watch them all the way through. I really liked it. I don't think it did much, but I love Domino. Did you ever see that? Yes. Kira Knightley, I think. The hit woman movie. Yeah, is it Kira Knightley? Was that who yeah. it was? Yeah. Uh, and I remember, I, I got to see it at like a, I think a now sneak preview screening. So I didn't know what I was going to go see. Right. I, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. But then I remember it coming out and I don't think it did much. But, uh, but again, but it was, that one was almost like Tony Scott style on crack. Where, because oh later on in his career, he just got way more aggressive with the editing and the colors and loved the big green, greenish, bluish wash color grade on everything. Yeah, that's definitely what comes to mind when I think of his movies. But um, you definitely have to see his last movie, Unstoppable, with uh, Chris Pine and Denzel Washington. That is just like peak, peak Scott. It's about as good as it gets. That's just a blast. Like from minute one to minute 99, that's just a thrill ride. You have to see it. Okay, I'm going to make a note of that one because that one I definitely haven't seen. But I want to go through because, again, he was one of those filmmakers that left us far before his time. Uh, and it makes you wonder, you know, there's 12, well, he died in 2010 Yeah, about then. 2010, then. 2012. Yeah, so now it's 12 years later, you know, there's at least, you know, four, maybe, maybe five Tony Scott movies that would have fit inside of that period. Yeah, for sure. I mean, his brother Ridley is, what, in his 80s now, and he's still knocking them out, so... He's still churning them out, uh, and they're, they're more hit than they are... Or more miss than they are hit these days. I don't know what House of Gucci was, but I, I'm down for The Martian. I could watch that movie every day of the week. I like The Martian a lot. Yeah. 
How's the Gucci? I have I couldn't I haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah, take your time getting around. <laughs> I, I I don't understand the Jared Leto love getting nominated for awards for that role. It is just so cartoonish and over the top. It doesn't jive with the rest of the movie. It's just it's so bizarre. It feels like, and I don't say this with any disrespect to Jared Leto because I like Jared Leto, but it feels like he's just trying to like it's. He's like our generation's Gary Oldman in terms of just like, like going really big with characters and just like changing his look in every single film. It's a good analogy. Um, but he's not Gary Oldman. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's not that he's not a good actor, but he's, just, he's not Gary Oldman, right? Where I remember, I remember so many times like showing people all the different, these different roles. And like, this is all the same actor. When you look at Gary Oldman from like from True Romance to uh, even the that Hannibal, Hannibal movie he's in, um, where he uh, he plays Mason something, he plays a guy that's like his face is disfigured. Uh, was he the guy at the pig farm? Yeah. Okay. He plays that, but then just so many other roles around that, and, and he literally disappears into these characters. When I was 15 and I discovered Gary Oldman, I thought he was the most talented person in the world. Like, every film I saw, I'm like, acting does not get any better than this. No! You, you just look, and again, it's like, these are weird comparisons, but you look at like his Axel Spivey from True Romance and Sirius Black and Harry Potter. Right. That's the same actor. <laughs> it's like, it's so, it's bonkers good. Yeah, but he gets the Oscar for putting on the fat suit and playing an 80-year-old man, too. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. He had to win it for something. <laughs> yeah. That that was something. I'll give him that. Um, Alright, back to Top Gun. Um, you mentioned... So, I think the one thing this movie is known for, and you kind of brought it up in, in the intro of the one thing you knew, was homoerotic themes and whatnot. So, now that you've seen it, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as soon as I leave here, I'm going on a YouTube deep dive, just seeing all the deconstructions of what this movie represents. I know there's a really famous speech by Tarantino who yeah. gave in a movie, just laying it all out there. Uh, there was a lot of shirtless men, a lot of sweaty men, lots of like hugging and touching, lots of getting in each other's faces and making eyes at each other, uh, lots of allusions to hard-ons. So I don't think that that went undetected by Tony Scott. Like I think he was trying to comment on something about masculinity. I need to put a little bit more thought on into it before I figure out what, but... It definitely comes across with a very strong gay subtext. It's true. It's interesting. Like, even we, we kind of commented when we were watching this uh, beach volleyball scene, where which is the reason why he's late to meet the girl for the first time. Because he's just... Cause it, <laughs> he's like, I gotta go. He's so mad. He's, but he's just playing beach volleyball. A very aggressive game of beach, volley, beach, beach, beach volleyball against ice. Uh, in his jeans, as you, you noted. Not even jorts. Full-on jeans. Yeah, jeans, shirtless. But then he puts his sweater or his his flight suit jacket on, his leather jacket, because uh, clearly it's not that super warm. Right. All I know is if I had a date with that lady, like I would not be playing volleyball with the boys. I'd be afraid I'd get hurt. I'd be afraid I'd be late. I'd be like waiting around the corner from her house at the donut shop, just checking my watch every 10 minutes. Yeah. And then he shows up and the first thing he says is like, well, hey, while you finish up in here, I'm going to go have a shower. Never been to the person's house before. Yeah, that's that's a that's a baller move right there. What can I say? But but she shuts him down. Yeah, she shuts him down a lot. I like that about her. Yeah, she. But then but then again, 
She is a really interesting character until the moment she says, I'm falling for you. And then, like, there's nothing to her character. Yeah, I feel like a woman like that would definitely know where he's coming from and know, like, she'd be ready for it. She wouldn't get swept up in the romance of this, whatever he was, like, 23-year-old kid. I feel like she would be in control of the whole situation. It felt kind of, you know, it felt fake, you know, when she was just, like, made eyes at him and said, I'm falling for you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't buy that moment at all. Like, you, like to your point, it could have just been like, hey, I'm kind of interested in this. Yeah, this is fun, but I know what this is. You know, don't get your hopes up, kid. Well, that's just it, because we go from I'm falling for you, and then all the stuff with Goose, and he says, and she comes to him and she's like, hey, I would have told you I was leaving. Like, it seems at that point, more realistic to what it should be, like this casual relationship they're having. Uh, where because at that point it feel she doesn't feel like she's crying or upset about anything about it, right? So it just felt inconsistent across the board. Yeah, I think there's a lot of strange inconsistencies in this movie, but you just it's it just goes so fast and it's so full of adrenaline. You just don't think too hard about them. Well, there's even leading up to his graduation, they mention that he goes to the the guy's house to Viper's house. Uh, and he's like, well, you, if you get your credits in time by tomorrow, you can graduate, but who knows? It's like, but then he just had the graduation. Like you don't see him. Yeah. Considering this whole thing was about going to the top gun school to be the best of the best. They really yada yada, like the whole graduating as a top gun Academy. All of it really. It's just about him being cocky. Goose dies by a random fluke. And then he just kind of coasts through the rest of the Top Gun Academy and, and barely graduates. Yeah, it, it's a weird, it's a weird journey for sure. Yeah, the story itself is not is 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 weak. So I'm all I can think of is is that, you know, just given Tom Cruise and, and what he does as a storyteller now as a producer and, and and star, I imagine that the second one can't help but be improved, um, just by having a better story. Yeah, there's nowhere to go but up from from this one. I mean, this one was good. It's a really fun, solid movie, but uh, it was choppy, right? Yeah. I think the next one is going to be like a legit, well-crafted movie with Tom Cruise star power, with you know top-notch effects, and it's just going to hit on every level. Well, that's just it. Like what was really fascinating too is is like we said, it's like it's it's 35 years later, you know, film cameras and technology and CGI is so much push now it's like there's nothing they can't do in this next one yeah but that might be the film's achilles heel right like this movie would not have worked if we felt like we were just watching cartoon airplanes zipping across the sky you really need to have that visceral i'm in the cockpit with these guys that tense sweaty feeling is like a major part of the attraction yeah i i I wonder i mean i I feel like with someone like tom cruise like that'll come across because i think like you said he's got a sense of what these things should be and how they should feel and, and what the audiences want from something like this. Yeah. So he, he probably he probably started learning how to actually fly a fighter jet like 5 years ago before making this film. So at least his shots will be authentic. I guarantee you the only reason he wanted to make the sequel is so he could learn how to fly it. That makes so much sense. Or to convince like, hey, I have to like I'm sure he's wanted to fly a fighter jet for a long time and now he has an excuse to make people let him yeah, he's turning the studio exec's hairs gray, for sure. It's his is equivalent to like I think there was the old joke about Adam Sandler and the movies he makes is he just kind of like would decide where he wanted to go on vacation for a couple months and right. with his friends and then decide that's where his movie was going to take place. Yeah, then a movie just happens over there. Yeah, 
where I think where Tom Cruise is like he comes up with a crazy thing he wants to do and then gets them to write it into a movie so he can justify being able to do that himself. Yeah, the last Mission Impossible had him skydiving from almost space, right? Like, this, there's nothing this man won't do. No, and I love... Have you heard the stories about how they had to do that for, like, a month and a half straight to get the shot properly? Yeah. Because they could only do it one time a day because the lighting was it needed to be a certain way. And they were training him on those, like, fake skydiving vents for, like, months leading up to the shoot. It's... it's this is one of my biggest gripes. If I have leave any impact on the world of film as a critic, I want it to be people respect the lengths people go through to make action movies. Like, the choreography, the timing, for something like a John Wick movie, the way people start martial arts training seven months before the film, that does not get the credit it deserves. Yeah. No, even I was just watching the, um, the Disney Plus series Assembled today while I was kind of working in the background, and I was watching the, the, the Black Widow making of, and just looking at all this stuff and how hard Scarlett Johansson worked on that character over the course of many films. But just like the m- multiple different styles of martial arts she's using and how they're all blended together is really fascinating. Um, and especially Black Widow as, as a fighter. Just the way like she literally just like spins around and inside of people. It's, yeah. And it's all like a person doing it. It's not CGI. It's, it's, you know, it's not always her, but it's a human being is doing that. Yeah, it should not be humanly possible the things they do. I think there should totally be an Academy Award uh, category for action choreography. And, stu- and a stunt performer. Yeah. Yeah. Act- the Actra Awards do it um, in, in Canada. So, Because this is one of those things like people are risk. It is shocking, actually, given all the things that, that we give awards for. I mean, there are awards for stunties, I'm sure. Um, but that's but- the kind of stuff they cut out of the award ceremonies, any- or they would if the Oscars had them, right? But you think now, like, when they're desperate to to be relevant um, and to get people watching, if you knew that there was going to be, like, just, like, picture if they they did the award properly, this is how you do it, right? Just like we get to see, you know, the artists come up on stage and sing the song that they're nominated for that year. Like, if you got to see even, like, a 30-second behind-the-scenes to how this stunt was made at the Oscars... And it's something that was not going to end up on a Blu-ray special edition or behind the scenes. Like, you got to see, like, what went into this stunt that's been nominated. And so, kind of like the way you could nominate multiple songs in a single movie, if there was more than one original song. Like, you're actually just nominating a particular stunt from a movie. Yeah, and I think that would really just elevate people's appreciation of film. Like, we see these things and we just pass them off like they're easy to do. Or that they're just being done with computer effects. But people put so much time and effort into just blocking these shots and capturing them. But also, and putting their lives in line. Some of them. Yeah, that right? happens. Yeah. Literally, that, that's like the number one cause of death in filmmaking is stunts. Someone actually died on, an, uh, one of the pilots died making Top Gun. Oh, really? Yeah, they had a professional stunt pilot, I believe. And I think... He went into one of those spins, like in the film, and he couldn't get out. And I think they dedicated the film to him. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I can't imagine just just watch. That's a, that's the one moment of the movie that's very visceral. Where you're watching that, and you're just like, "Oh God, he's fucked." He's <laughs> yeah. I felt my stomach drop. Yeah, well, you, you, and you can only imagine yourself in that situation. I'd be like, "Well, I'm, I'd probably just die of a heart attack in the moment." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'd be dead before I hit the ground. Uh, well, this made me more excited to watch to watch the new one for sure. 
Yeah, like I said, I'm not a fan of Tom Cruise, but I'm a fan of Tom Cruise movies, and I respect the amount of work, the amount of hard work he puts into like giving the audience a show. So I'm legit pumped to see Top Gun Two. Yeah, no, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be super super solid. And so this will, I'm gonna line up this episode so it comes out with uh, just before. So I will also be watching it probably on the opening weekend. I'll bring my son now that he's watched it. Uh, any other final thoughts on Top Gun? It holds up. It's a killer classic. Um, I, I wish I had seen it sooner. Maybe not too soon because it would have changed my path in life, but definitely <laughs> I'm glad. I, I, there's not a movie I would have enjoyed more tonight watching it with you. I didn't ask you before. What? Why do you think it is that you never got around to seeing this? I just I don't like Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> He's hard to watch, so it's, you know I turn on Netflix. There's a hundred movies to watch. Why am I going to watch the one with the guy I don't like? Fair enough. And so much of this film has been like passed along in pop culture. So yeah. I had like some of the beats of it even before I seen it. So it wasn't that compelling of a mystery, but I'm glad I finally caught it. Okay. Well, we, we are both tonight later. I'm going to be diving into the YouTube's plethora of homoerotic homages to the Top Gun. Well, thanks for coming over, bud. Thanks for having me. Let's all go to the... Thanks for joining us for Top Gun. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at LonJeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.